The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today from the pulpit to the pew. Here we go, brothers. It's been a while since we did this. I'm not sure I've ever done it on a podcast. Uh, the truth of the matter is that Reconstruction, Christian Reconstruction, is not dead. It's been proclaimed dead many times. But as G.K. Chesterton observed, our God knows the way out of the grave. So we don't mind being proclaimed dead. We just will go on walking in resurrection power. Uh, as reconstruction grows, though, we wind up still having to kind of introduce people to uh, concepts and things that they were not taught before they became reconstructionists. And one of the passages that I see this happening a lot in is Romans 13, specifically verses 1 through 7. In Romans 13, 1 through 7, we have the passage about submitting to governing authorities and doing so for conscience's sake and paying taxes and all of that. And many people who are brand new Reconstructionists came into the faith and began their uh, Christian walk in evangelical churches who have pointed to this passage as a mandate for obedience to the state and specifically some folks like John MacArthur have come very close uh, I would argue he's gone all the way but I'll give a little bit of grace here some folks have gone uh, come very close to teaching an unqualified sort of obedience to the state and they base their they base that on Romans 13, 1 through 7. I think, frankly, that these are a very small minority. I think since I wrote my very famous best-selling book on Romans 13, I've run into a lot of 
people kind of talking about it and pushing back a little bit here and there. And, and frankly, I've decided that most evangelical Bible believers do not think that this passage teaches unqualified obedience. I think that's a very small minority who believe that. I'm convinced most run-of-the-mill American Christians believe that what is being said here is that you should obey the government until the government tries to tell you to sin. Those are very different things. And the issue, the place where the place where these evangelicals who believe this, the place where they differ a lot from Reconstructionists is not with this idea, but they differ then on the definition of what sin is. Uh, let's all agree, you should disobey the government when they tell you to sin. <laughs> but now we're going to have to come up with a standard of what sin is and how do we know what sin is. And evangelicals do not believe that the law of God is a standard for sin. Especially, it's not a standard when it comes to human governments. They're especially reluctant to apply it there. But the fact that they won't apply it there means that they kind of lean in the direction of obeying whatever the government says uh, until it tells you to do something blatantly sinful like deny Christ or, or something in that category. Stop witnessing to people or, or something like that. But we would say, the theonomists and reconstructionists, we would say that the definition of sin is a bit more broad than that. There are a lot of ways the government can sin, and by commanding you to obey their dictates, they would have you join them in that sin. What about when government commands, for instance, government commands a Christian charity that they're no longer allowed to feed the homeless? Is that? Sin, should it be disobeyed or should we submit? How would you know? Well, I'm convinced evangelicals don't know. They know what they feel and they don't have an objective standard. But let's admit, let's read this passage here and I'm going to make a startling admission. We're going to read Romans 13, 1 through 7. Every, I'll be reading from the Holman Christian Standard Translation. Everyone must submit to the government, governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do good, and you will have its approval. For government is God's servant to you for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For government is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's public servants continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. Here's my startling admission as we've come to the end of this text, 
If you take the first several verses of what I just read and you take them as if they stand by themselves in a vacuum, it sure does look like the Christian's duty is to obey whatever the government says. <laughs> and if you don't obey, then you're disobeying God, not just the government, but now you've got, now you've got God all on you because you uh, are disobeying the government. It, it does look like that. That is what it says. And if you, if you insist on taking this passage as if it exists in a vacuum, like Paul didn't write anything else in the book of Romans, Paul didn't write anything else in the whole New Testament. Nobody wrote anything else in the New Testament or the Old Testament. If all that was true, and we just read Romans 13, 1 through 7, we'd have a very statist view of how we're supposed to relate to the government. I just want to point out that this passage does not exist in that kind of vacuum. And the truth is that all the authors of the Scripture are... Uh, they're humans writing under, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And like human beings, they speak in human ways. And sometimes those ways are a bit hyperbolic. Uh, maybe they say things, they lay emphasis in ways that if you were there talking to them face to face, you'd have no doubt what they were trying to communicate. But if you insist on taking their words as literally as possible and isolating them from everything else the Bible has said, you're going to wind up in some weird places. Not just here, but let's say you then go to... Thank you, somebody just messaged me. <laughs> what am I wearing? Who, who wrote that? Okay, so... Uh, boy, that just blew my train off the tracks. What I'm saying is that you can't just take a verse in isolation. A text without its context is a pretext. That's right. And so not just here, but let's say you go to the book of James and you find James saying that faith without works is dead. And you see that uh, a man is justified not by faith alone, but by faith plus works. Well, you take that stuff out of context and you act like nothing else was ever said about faith and works, you're going to wind up in a really uh, bad place. So my first thing that I want to admit is, yes, if Romans 13, 1 through 7 stood completely by itself, we would have no reason to think that our obligation is anything other than unqualified obedience. But we all admit that's not what it's actually saying. Even the evangelicals who get nervous when they hear Reconstructionists talk, even they know they're not supposed to obey when the government tells them to sin. And then the rub is just, well, how do you know? Now, I'm not going to have time to go through these verses in a consecutive manner. There are just a couple of ideas that I want to bring out, including that one that I just talked about with context and how you know, nobody really goes way off the deep end about obedience, except John MacArthur. But most everybody else understands this isn't talking about blanket obedience to everything in every detail. And so there are just a couple of other hints that I want to show you, a couple of things that I think will illuminate this passage a little bit. The second one, in addition to the context of the whole rest of the Scripture, if you look in verse 13, we run into the word submit. Everyone must submit. And you find it later later on as well. You must submit yourself 
in verse 5, you must submit not only because of wrath. And so this word submit appears several times in the passage, a couple of times at least. And then uh, it's good for us to understand exactly what that word means. Because maybe our Western reaction to this word, when we hear that we're supposed to submit, what I think we tend to think in terms of slavish devotion. And that isn't what the word means. In the Greek, the word for submit here and in other places in the scripture, submit is a Greek word called hupotasso. And hupotasso, if you look this up in any good Greek glossary or lexicon, what you're going to find is it means to be willing to put yourself under the authority of someone who is over. Now, the way I like to imagine this, the, the word picture that I like to paint is of a very tall ladder. Let's say it's 30 or 40 feet and it's leaned up against the building. It's a very tall ladder and it's strong. And so on this ladder, imagine there are several people at different heights along the ladder. Okay, and then for our purposes, we're going to say that the Lord Jesus Christ is at the very top. He's over the entire ladder. He's not on it. He's over it. And the ladder belongs to him and everyone on the ladder belongs to him. And so what this ladder symbolizes is the delegated authority of God. And what hupotasso means is that you and I as Christians and individuals walking around on the planet, we have to realize that we are not the big shots and we are not the boss in every situation that we encounter. We're going to run into situations where there are people over us on the ladder. Hupotasso means a willingness to recognize that delegated authority, the order of that authority, to recognize it and be willing to place ourselves under. Place yourselves under so that someone else can go over. It's all about servanthood. It's all about imitating the servanthood, servanthood of Christ, who, though he existed in the form of God, what? He emptied himself and, and was found in the form of a bond servant and he in that form of a servant he obeyed to such an extent that God has now exalted him and given him the name above every name right Jesus Christ is that authority he earned that authority by his service and by his obedience to God and now he's at the top of the stack what this scripture is saying what Romans 13 is saying here is that where you find authorities genuine authorities. You're finding authorities that were delegated by God. And hupotasso means you're willing to put yourselves under that authority. However, every time that you see hupotasso used in the New Testament, and you see it in several places, you see it here, Christians are supposed to submit to the governing authorities. You see it in other places where Christians are supposed to submit one to another. Wives are told to submit to their husbands. Slaves are told to submit to their masters. And so you find submission all over the place. And although the word is not used, submission in terms of the husband submitting to the wife, although hupotasso isn't used there, the, the husband is told to lower himself for the sake of putting his wife over. He's supposed to, he's supposed to imitate Christ by pouring himself out on behalf of his wife. Okay, so this whole concept of hupotasso is all about your 
your own right and duty of private judgment, and God is urging you to use that right and duty to submit yourself to put yourself under God's delegated authorities. And every time this word hupotasso is used, every time anybody in the New Testament is told to submit, what is missing there, and I'm not the first one to point this out, what is missing there is any responsibility on the part, on the part of the authority, any right or power on the part of the authority to command that submission. I don't know if you heard what I said. When the scripture tells Christians to submit, there is no corresponding right of the authority figure to command or force that submission. That submission is left, to, left as a voluntary duty on the individual level. The, the wife voluntarily submits to the authority of her husband when her husband is on that ladder. What I mean by that is, if you've ever seen a ladder, you, you understand that you can climb to the top, and if you want to, you can step off the ladder. You can move one step over to the side, and you're no longer on the ladder. In fact, you're falling at a very rapid pace to the bottom. And people who were under you are now waving at you as you go by. They're still on that ladder, but you stepped off. And I believe hupotasso, part of what it means is, part of putting yourself under, it's not just that you're putting yourself under the next guy higher, but you're putting yourself under Jesus Christ at the top. And so there's a straight line like a ladder going down to wherever it is that you belong, whatever rung of that ladder you occupy. And so when somebody above you steps off that ladder to one side or the other, what are you supposed to do? You're not supposed to step off the ladder with them. You're supposed to stay on the ladder and obey the authority of Jesus Christ. Even if it winds up that everybody over you, everybody higher on the ladder has stepped off to the side and the only one over you is Christ, you're still not supposed to step off the ladder. If everyone steps off to one side or the other, you hold on. You stay there. You, you submit. You hupotasso to Christ. And I think once we get that in Romans 13, 1 through 7, well, that, that kind of just makes sense, doesn't it? That the Christian man or woman filled with the Spirit of God, educated by the scriptures that God has given, that man or woman is supposed to use his or her right and duty of private judgment to evaluate every supposed command and order that we are given. There were some people walking around. A guy could walk in here right now off the street and start issuing commands, and I would feel no, no obligation to do anything that he said because I do not recognize him as having any authority. But there are some people who might come in, and, you know, President of the United States, maybe he comes in, and, and I recognize the fact that he's in a little bit different place than I am. But still... I have to exercise my right and duty of private judgment. If he tells me something that's uh, not offensive and not antichrist and asks me to do a thing for him, I, I'll do that. I, I don't care. But step off that ladder and I'm just going to wave at you as you go down. doesn't matter what commands you yell at me as you're falling. Hupotasso does not mean blanket obedience doesn't mean detailed 
unqualified obedience. Hupotasso means you submit to others as they are submitting themselves to Christ. As soon as they stop submitting to Christ, you stop submitting to them. I believe this is the way Hupotas was used consistently throughout the New Testament. In fact, this might surprise you. In fact, go to the very lowest rung on the ladder. What is that? That's the rung that would be occupied by the first century slave. Lowest rung on the ladder. And I'm convinced the way Peter uses Hupotasso towards the slave, it implies, uh, it, it at least implies that that slave is still going to have to evaluate what he's told. Let me just show this to you instead of talk about it. If you'll turn with me to 1 Peter in chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's take a look at verses 18 and following. The apostle writes, Household slaves, submit yourselves, that's hupotasso, hupotasso yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if because of conscience toward God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly, For what credit is there if you endure when you sin and are beaten? But when you do good and suffer, if you endure, it brings favor with God. What was just said there? Slaves, obey your masters. And know their their bad character is is not enough to move them off off the authority ladder. Even the bad guys, as long as they're not giving you sinful commands, even the bad guys, you obey them, the bad masters. But what did Peter say? Peter anticipates that even the slave who does good is going to set himself up for suffering for the sake of righteousness. This means that even the slave that is doing nothing wrong, he's hupotassoing his heart out. He's serving his master. And Peter anticipates that he is probably going to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Now listen, if you were a slave owner and your slave did nothing but obey promptly whatever order you gave him, what reason would you have to beat on that slave or cause him to suffer? You'd have none. But why would a slave suffer? If you give him an order and you feel like he's he's just defiantly telling you, no, I'm not going to do that. And give me another order and maybe I'll obey that, but I can't do this. Well, now that might make you mad. Now you might beat on that slave. And Peter anticipates that even after he's told the slave to hupotasso toward his master, that slave is still going to have to take a stand for righteousness at some point and may well wind up suffering, even being beaten for it. If this is true of the slave, how much more is it true of the free man? If it's true of the slave, how much more is it true of the owners of a household, the husband and the wife? You see how this works? Hupotasso is not the same as obey. It means you're willing to obey. You're willing to obey God's delegated authorities. You're willing to submit to them if and when their orders are given in submission to Christ. So we've talked about context, the whole context of the scripture. You can go back to the Old Testament. You can find 
the people of God, the righteous people of God, the heroes of the faith. We call them judges in the book of Judges. You will find these heroes of the faith uh, wiping out kings, delegated authorities, men who had legitimate authority over the nation of Israel. And then God would send a judge to come and move those guys out. And not politely either. (laughs) On the other hand, you move forward from where we are and you find the book of Hebrews and chapter 11 in the Hall of Fame of Faith. And let me challenge you, just go through the lives of the characters who are listed in that Hall of Fame of Faith and see how they dealt with kings and rulers and people in authority. And you might be a little bit surprised at what you find there. So there's context. The whole Bible teaches something other than blanket obedience to every uh, pretended ruler or authority. And the Bible also, by using the word hupotasso and not the word that means automatic obedience, it places submission in the hands of the individual doing the submitting. And it bases that submission on that individual's right and duty of private judgment to determine for himself or herself whether the command he's being forced to obey is righteous or not. The other thing I would like to point out, I'm going to do two, two other things. One, one is more my own thing, and then I want to share with you something else from another guy smarter than me. It says in verse 3 of Romans 13, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do good and you will have its approval. If you do wrong, be afraid because it does not carry the sword for no reason. Okay. Historically, when was this written? The book of Romans written sometime before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, written to Christians living in first century Rome, including Christians who would uh, be living under the reign of Caesar Nero. Now, Caesar Nero was the first really bad uh, beastly character in terms of persecuting Christians. In fact, when he decided it was time to wipe out Christianity, It was the Roman Christians, the Christians living in Rome, who took the brunt of his hammer blows as he tried to wipe out Christianity. Uh, Many thousands of Christians in Rome suffered martyrdom at the hands of Nero. Many thousands. Not just in the gladiatorial games where they were torn to pieces or something like that, but in the famous Roman candles where... Christian people would be impaled on poles and then lit on fire in order to illuminate Nero's nighttime parties. What I want to point out here is that a lot of Christians will say about Romans 13, they'll say something like this. Well, see, Paul calls the uh, government the servant of God and says that we should obey him, even though the servant at the time, the governor at the time, was Nero. He was a beast. And so if Paul said that the Roman Christians were supposed to submit to Nero, how much more should we submit to government that is not 
actively killing Christians. You know, it's not nearly as bad as what Nero was doing. Uh, all I want to point out is that I don't think that makes any sense in the text here. Because what Paul said to those first century Christians is, if you do good, you will have nothing to fear from the government. If you do bad, then you'll get the sword. But if you do good, uh, you may even get, get rewarded by God's servant, the government here. But I just want to point out, that isn't the way it happened. And now you have to think about things like inspiration. Was Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit or was he not? If he's talking about what he actually thought would happen to those first century Roman believers, he was wrong. They did good and got the sword. They refrained from doing what was evil. And the only thing they got rewarded with, rewarded with was martyrdom. They did good and had reason to fear the government. But Paul has just said, if you do good, you'll have no reason to fear. So we have to figure out a way around that little conundrum there. And I think the way around it is to understand that while what Paul is saying in Romans 13, 1 through 7, he's not talking about a particular government. He's not talking about Nero's government specifically. He's talking about God's intended purpose for human government. A human government that is hanging on to its place in the, on that ladder of authority underneath Christ, hupotassoing to Jesus, a government like that is going to what? Reward the good and punish the wicked. That's what their job is. That's what God has sent them to do. But that's not what Nero did. So this idea, oh, but Paul told the Romans to submit to Nero. No, he did not. It's plain he was not talking about Nero in this passage. Not only is he not mentioned, uh, no particular government is mentioned in this passage, but we're speaking in terms of theory here. The last thing I want to mention to you is a really interesting thing that, our, that my friend Bojdar Marinov said when he was in this pulpit several years ago for what we called our Freedom Conference. And he was not teaching on Romans 13, 1 through 7, but he did mention something that has really uh, kind of changed my thinking or, or expanded it at least. Something that he pointed out that just makes all the sense in the world to me. And you find it then in Hebrews or uh, Romans 13, verse 4, where it says that government is God's servant. Government is God's servant. In verse earlier in verse 4 it says government is God's servant to you for good. Government is God's servant to you for good. And what Bo pointed out then is that that one phrase right there completely undermines every form of pagan government. It 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 totally undermines it because of the pagan idea, the pagan concept of the unity of being or the oneness of being. And in this pagan idea, uh, the whole concept is that the lower creatures, like the bacteria that live under the rim of your toilet bowl, all the way up through insects and whatever, and, and creepy crawly creatures all the way up to 
larger animals and men, and then eventually to the gods, like Pharaoh and the Egyptian pantheon and, and all those things, that the concept of oneness of being means that beginning with that bacteria in the toilet and going all the way up to the gods, all the life along on this line is made of the same stuff. It's a oneness, it's a unity of being. The only thing that separates the slave from the gods is his situation and how much power he has, how much authority he has, and how much strength he might have to accomplish his own will. He's the same kind of being, just in a different kind of situation. And in every pagan society then, it's no, no accident that the highest human authority becomes itself deified. It becomes a god. And we see this throughout the scripture. I believe beginning with Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. But certainly forward from there, how many kings do we run into? Pharaoh, the Babylonian kings, the Medo-Persians, and uh, the Caesars after them. And lots of little kings along the way. You run into this over and over again, the idea that kings are gods who just haven't entered into that spiritual realm yet. Kings are deified. Kings are at the top of the stack, and everything that is not there at the top with them lives only to serve and to worship that king on the top of the stack. And so it becomes a very radical statement then when God says, in Romans 13, verse 4, he says, government is God's, God's servant to you. That completely upends, upends the entire pagan worldview. It, it does away with this oneness of being concept by saying, the one that claims to be on the top of the stack now, let me tell you something. I have made him to be your servant. He's my servant, and he's my servant to you. His function is to do good for you. Completely destroys pagan governments, pagan authorities, oneness of being. It's all done away with. Because the only pagan concept, the only way this works, is that the guy who's at the top of the stack, everything else lives and exists only to serve that king. And God is saying, no, the king exists to serve me and to serve you, my people. Completely reverses the order of things. You see how that works? And so in very much the same way that people have looked at the New Testament writings, especially Paul's letter to Philemon and, and other things that the New Testament has to say about slavery and even Christian slave owners telling them, you're not allowed to threaten your slaves anymore. Well, think about that for a second. If you're not allowed to <laughs> if you're not allowed to threaten your slaves anymore, that means coercion is out the door. It means that now your slave might serve you, but it's only gonna be because he decides that he wants to. You don't get to coerce them into obedience anymore. And little things like that throughout the New Testament, I'm convinced that uh, they spell the death of the sort of slavery that people in the first century were familiar with and dealing with. The gospel destroys slavery. Uh, 
It just hasn't done it very quickly. <laughs> Worldwide, anyway. And in the same way, I believe that the gospel destroys tyrannical human government. And we've just seen a little bit of it here. Very quickly, let's go through these points again. The first one is context. Nowhere in the Bible are we told to offer blanket, unqualified obedience to the government. Instead, second point, we are told to hupotasso, which means to voluntarily and cheerfully submit ourselves to people that we admit are over us on the ladder. But submitting, submitting first and foremost to the Lord Jesus who owns the ladder. The third thing then is this idea that Romans 13 is not particularly describing any particular government, but it's describing the purpose and function of government under God. And the last thing from Bo, this idea that it's a radical statement, more radical than we understand, I'm convinced. When God says to the Roman Christians, human government is God's servant to you, that's a radical thing. And when you combine all these things and other things, you know, read my very famous and best-selling book that goes into more detail on all these different passages. Uh, when you go into all these things and you combine these ideas, you see that Romans 13, 1 through 7 is not the verse that tyrants like Hitler wish it was. It's, it's simply not that text. They got to look somewhere else. It's not here. Frankly, it's nowhere in the Bible, but it's certainly not here. Uh, they've tried to make it be here, but it's not. State worshipers, you're going to have to find another text because this ain't it. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.